Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, Return to the New Books Network. This is the Native American Studies channel. I'm your host today. We're here today with Assistant Professor of American Studies at Amherst College, Assistant Professor Kiara Vigil. She's here today to discuss Indigenous Intellectuals, her new book on sovereignty, citizenship, and the American imagination, 1880 to 1930. Welcome, Professor Vigil. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, by way of introduction, how did the speech of Potawatomi leader Simon Pokagan, which he gave at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and it was later actually printed on birch bark and entitled A Red Man's Rebuke, exemplify the strategies later Indian intellectuals would use to make their voices heard both at the time and in your book? Great question. So I begin the book with this vignette of Simon Pokagan at the World's Fair in 1893, because even though he's not necessarily um, an inter- a direct interlocutor with the people who are the center of the project, I do think that his use of a public performance site such as the fair to give a speech and then to also circulate himself amongst fairgoers and to sell this red man's rebuke on birch bark as something that could be read as a souvenir, something that could be read as a treatise, something that could be read as a political tract, um, was very strategic in terms of representing what I call Indianness in the book um, and what Native intellectuals were able to do later in the early 20th century when they were in public settings where there would be non-Native people there who were interested in hearing about Indigenous people's histories, Indigenous people's cultural practices, and their politics. And so I think his circulation of his ideas through this public performance, through the written text, and then his actual kind of mingling with people was very educational, was a way of demonstrating his um, intellectual feats, was a way of arguing for the inclusion of Native voices in the body politic of the United States. And so in that way, he's a nice example of what was possible and could be possible for other Native intellectuals who followed after him. So your book aims to provide a collective cultural biography of four Indian intellectuals, Charles Eastman, Carlos Montezuma, Gertrude Bonin, and Luther Standing Bear. What is a collective cultural biography, and why do you de- why did you decide to focus on these four individuals? Yeah, so um, in the introduction, I mentioned some other Native intellectual figures, political leaders, activists, writers from this period, this kind of turn of the 20th century moment, who could have been uh, a chapter in the book, who I also could have focused on. Uh, Arthur C. Parker would be a good example. Uh, Angel Decora Dietz might be another. But... Um, Part of what I was aiming to do with cultural, collective cultural biography was to argue that these people are best understood as in network terms, right? So in conversation with one another, you know, how are they participating in shared discourses around indigeneity, sovereignty, and citizenship um, and culture? And so for me, collective cultural biography became a useful framework for thinking about 
these people, both as individuals and as individuals who are part of larger indigenous networks and who are also part of larger non-native networks. Uh, Charles Eastman, Gertrude Bonin, for example, worked with the same publishing houses in Boston, right? So print history, print culture, the circulation of books by native people, uh, that's a network, that's a kind of place to trace indigenous political activism and cultural production. And so to think of them as a collective was helpful, but I wanted to maintain the biographical. I wanted to be able to focus on each person um, in a deep way, in a nuanced way, so that I could say something new about them because these are well known to a lot of scholars of American literature, a lot of scholars of Native history. Not everyone has thought of them together or has looked at them in terms of strategies they might've shared around public performance, um, around issues related to allotments and um, citizenship in the U.S., and even how they have may have thought about um, the work that their literary um, texts are doing. So that's that was helpful for me. There, there was really only one other book that kind of used this framework in a somewhat similar way, The Black Hearts of Men um, by Stover. And so I guess that was some kind of an example, but I was really looking to create my own framework for how to think about them, which I thought might be a useful model for other people in Native studies who are going to this period and wanting to make sense of what different people are doing, people who are often found in the same time and place. Um, Bonin and Montezuma and Eastman are all active in the Society of American Indians, for instance. Uh, Luther Standing Bear isn't directly involved, though his younger brother Henry is. Um, And so I was trying to think about them, like what does it mean to be a collective, right? Like what are the kind of really direct ways that they're connected, but then what are the less direct but still meaningful ways that we could think about them together? Can you also briefly discuss the conceptual frameworks for four key words in your book, citizenship, intellectual, blood, and you've already referenced this, Indianness? Yeah, and I was doing scare quotes, which no one can see because it's a podcast, but yeah, so I guess I'll start with Indianness because that's a really thorny one. So a lot of these folks are referring to themselves as Indians um, today. And I teach Native history classes and we talk about what words should we use uh, today? Native people tend to use the word native a lot, sometimes indigenous, sometimes aboriginal, depending on your context. Uh, not so much Indian and in everyday, like in an academic context as much, but, but I'm, I mean, as a native person myself, I've definitely been in circles where I feel like we're all calling ourselves Indians. <laughs> so that does still happen. Um, but Indianness to me was an important thing to define because I felt like it captured both how these people were using this terminology of Indian as a kind of racial identity category that carried with it political implications around tribal sovereignty. Um, and that at the same time that they were doing that, they were very much engaged with how non-Native people were talking about Indians. And so Indianness to me um, is about how Native people themselves are mobilizing dominant cultural expectations around what it means to be an Indian person in um, cultural terms, but also actually in like political terms at, at this moment, the turn of the 20th century. And certainly parts of that have to do with the other words. So citizenship, intellectual blood, like those are all kind of intersecting within something like Indianness. Uh, for, for a lot of them, they're talking about citizenship and they're 
talking about it in terms of dual citizenship, how to consider themselves as members of tribal nations, but also how to think about themselves as citizens in the U.S. because they're trying to push back against federal Indian policy that's been very oppressive and, and restrictive in terms of indigenous agency. Uh, so citizenship, I also think, is a helpful category because it's very much a part of public discourse in the early 20th century because of immigration um, and because of um, women suffrage, because of um, African-American men and women also wanting to be included in the body politics. So to me, it seemed like a really important word because of the time period that the book focuses on, but also because a lot of these Native people themselves are talking about citizenship and they're using it strategically in that way. Uh, and then blood I had to grapple with because of the way that blood discourse um, works in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to race and racialization. And what's really interesting is that, you know, especially in this moment of kind of um, you know, the early 20th century, I think there's been a lot of scholarship around the black-white binary and the ways of thinking about African-Americans and, and white Americans and race. And the one-drop rule certainly, I think, comes to mind. And for a lot of Native people, the logic of elimination, to reference Patrick Wolf's work, um, has really had an almost inverse relationship to blood, where Native people have have been talked about in terms of their full-bloodedness. Uh, Eastman, you see a lot of examples of this in the way that he's marketed as a Native author. And so I wanted to grapple with what blood means um, in terms of these discursive formations. You know, why is it that uh, one drop of Black blood makes you Black, but any intermixing between, let's say, um, a white American and a Native American somehow then diminishes any Native claims to identity. Of course, that makes sense in terms of settler colonialism because you, it's easier to erase indigeneity or erase Native people and displace them um, from this nation, right? If any intermarriage means that they are somehow less Indian, therefore less able to claim this place as theirs. Uh, so that's, to me, a big part of why blood was important. And, and also it's a thorny thing, you know? Um, it's very uncomfortable, the kind of racist and racialized language that's being used to market folks like Charles Eastman and Gertrude Bonin and their kind of full-bloodedness. So I had to think about that um, a lot. Uh, and then intellectual was a kind of at the heart of this and also in some way came out of a conversation I had when I was in grad school and I was working on this project. And I had um, a lunch meeting with another grad student and a visiting English professor. And this English professor who um, I honestly don't even remember his name now, but he was asking me about our, my, my project. He, he did say something like, well, why are you calling them intellectuals? And I was like, well, because because that's how they refer to themselves and because they they were producing intellectual work. And so it just felt to me like the stakes of this particular project um, hinged on this idea of Native people as intellectuals. I was certainly thinking a lot about Robert Warrior's work on um, Indigenous intellectual history and traditions and how sometimes from a kind of 21st century perspective, um, Native study scholars are less likely to look back to this earlier moment and claim these folks as our intellectual ancestors because we're not always keen on uh, all of their political projects. Um, Eastman's a good example of this, and I feel like I feel very close to Eastman probably because we're both from the same, not just tribal nation, but the same like subset of that um, as Dakota people. But 
I think, you know, he's got this moment where he's pro allotment, but that shifts and he doesn't always have that perspective. Right. So he seems kind of, Oh, he wants native people to assimilate and incorporate themselves into, you know, U S society and history and just kind of erase their, any, you know, indigenous um, aspects of themselves. And that's not really true. I mean, when you look at a lot of his writings and a lot of his work, it's, that's not entirely true. Um, I think there's, there's strategic moments in which he, may have embraced the idea of allotment, um, perhaps as a way of claiming some agency over land, but um, he shifts his perspective on this. And anyway, so that's another reason why I feel like there's something important from a Native Studies perspective in terms of looking back at this generation and referring to them as intellectuals and seeing them as, you know, um, part of a really long and ongoing tradition of Indigenous intellectual production. So let us uh, go back to uh, Charles Eastman for a moment. Uh, Can you please introduce him for our listeners? Addressing his early years at Dartmouth, Boston College for Medical Studies, and Pine Ridge in South Dakota, particularly in regards to his conceptions of Indianness, his relationship with his wife, blood and education, and of course his 1915 arguments in the Indian today, including this idea of race leadership vis-a-vis the Society of American Indians. Okay, so so there's a lot going on in that question. Um, one important clarification would be he actually um, went to Boston University, uh, not Boston College. Sorry about that. For med- oh, that's okay. For medical school, uh, he was the the first Native graduate of BU for medical school, um, and at Dartmouth, um, he and is really claimed by Dartmouth actually uh, proudly um, for being a a kind of outstanding athlete and scholar in the late 19th century there. Um, And I think especially because of the school's history of being connected to Samson Occam, um, the Mohican minister, and uh, their desire to kind of market themselves as a school that's supposed to be educating Native people, even though they don't actually go on to do much of that. Um, And so when Eastman comes in the 19th century, there's this moment of like, oh, we're doing, we're fulfilling our mission, um, <laughs> which is interesting. So yeah, so he he distinguishes himself at Dartmouth in a lot of ways. He definitely, you know, grows up in, in a very rural um, Great Plains context um, in the Dakotas and some and a little bit in Canada, um, and then also Great Lakes. And so when he moves to Hanover, New Hampshire, I mean, that's a definitely it's it's a different place in a lot of ways. Um, and he becomes somewhat, well, he becomes educated about Northeastern high society. He, um, he learned, you know, he kind of learns some new parlor games and things like that. And it's, so it's very educational on a lot of levels. And I think it also introduces him to this world of people who are interested in solving what they call the so-called Indian problem or question, right? In the late 19th century, like, what are we going to do with these native people? And so he's able to form some friendships with some white benefactors through his undergraduate work at Dartmouth. And then um, that's something he can draw on later when he when he becomes an author. After going to medical school at BU, um, he's, you know, one of 
the doctors on the scene um, attending to victims of the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890 uh, out in South Dakota. That's the same context in which he meets his white wife, Elaine Goodale Eastman, who is from Western Massachusetts. Um, they actually, as a family, later live in Amherst, where I teach. <laughs> they lived down the road from Amherst College for a little bit of time. There's a lot that they do as a family that's very interesting that I could talk about the Eastmans for a really long time. But just to give a sense of Charles Eastman and part of why I think he's interesting is that he struggles to support Elaine and their children through um, his work as a doctor. And so he ends up becoming an author. She's, she's very much an avid writer herself. And uh, they, they do lots of like short pieces together and they kind of travel around and give talks to like local um, societies, often women's groups, but church societies and things around child rearing and, um, you know, what they think is important about family and all that. But later he is really leading the way in writing about his own childhood um, as a Dakota boy and this kind of transferring his knowledge, indigenous knowledge about Dakota cultural practices, religious rights, folk stories, things like that, and sharing them with what he envisions as a non-Native audience. There's a lot of young adult work that he, in terms of text that he writes, but then some for adults as well, semi-autobiographical things. And he becomes really this well-known, I'd say he's the most well-known Native author of this moment, so this kind of early 20th century moment, just because of the sheer number of things that he's able to publish and the different talks that he's invited to give. And he travels wildly throughout the Northeast and then um, other parts of the country. And then also even abroad in terms of Great Britain and things like that. And uh, is a leading figure in the Society of American Indians, which forms in 1911. Um, the Indian Today is, is an interesting one of his books because it, to me, reads like a kind of activist manual for other Native people. It gives a lot of examples of here's some work that some of our other Native um, political and intellectual leaders are doing, you know, as a way of saying, why aren't we all doing this? And I do think that he looks to, to folks of other movements. He looks to people like W.E.B. Du Bois and he sees like, okay, there's ways of organizing people around this idea of racial identity that could be empowering, maybe we should be doing this um, as Native people. And and this is the other thing about Eastman that's interesting, right, is that I first encountered him doing work in graduate school at Dartmouth, actually, and I uh, wrote my master's thesis about him and, and about his relationship with Elaine. But it, one of the things I found in the papers there, because they have a lot on Eastman, um, was a brochure from this race Congress uh, meeting, this kind of international Congress on race and how the panel for the United States was featuring two men of color. And one was W. Du Bois and one was Charles Eastman. And I was like, man, everybody knows about Du Bois and has read his work and knows who he is. And does anyone know who this Eastman guy is? I feel like they don't. Why is that? You know? So, um, so to me, that's why he needed to be part of this book. Um, because it, it's just unbelievable to me that we study this earlier progressive era and don't know anything about this person who, to, to my mind, was high, a high-profile figure um, in terms of Native writing, but just more, more generally, too. What were the repercussions in print, portrait, and performance of Eastman and other Indian intellectuals being forced to navigate their public presentations of Indianness in complicated, if also contradictory, ways in the early 20th century. Given the question of political message versus an imagined racial essence in the U.S. and Great Britain, 
And in addition, how did Eastman navigate modernity and manhood as uh, you've already mentioned this, a uh, Dartmouth Indian in the uh, 1927 photographs in front of Dartmouth College, one of which I think appears on the cover of your book. Yeah, yeah. So so I wasn't super psyched to have that image on the front of my book, but I do talk a bit about it, uh, quite a bit about it in the first chapter on Eastman. It's an interesting one, and I think it says a lot about um, this first part of your question about what were the repercussions in print portrait and performance when it comes to the work of Eastman and other native intellectuals, because they were having to really walk a fine line between what are popular um, cultural expectations to use a Phil Deloria kind of framework from his work, Indians in unexpected places. They're having to think about, okay, what is the dominant discourse around Indianness right now? Like what do non-Native people expect from us. And really what they expect most of the time is a kind of primitivist aesthetic and a, uh, you know, noble savage uh, performance, mainly to help them, I think, maybe feel a little bit less guilty about conquest, but also because of the the workings of modernity and modernization and kind of longing for a simpler time, right? And so there's this kind of imperialist nostalgia stuff that's happening too. And I think these native people are very aware of all of this, they're very savvy. And so someone like Eastman is super strategic, right? Like he travels to Great Britain, as I mentioned, and he's invited by these royal societies and they're writing these letters to him and asking him, please wear your please wear your buckskin you know, fringe dress stuff and your headdress and carry your tomahawk and all that. And he does do that. And that's actually what he's wearing on the cover image of my book and this portrait from um, his reunion at Dartmouth in 1927. And I'll say more about that in a second. But basically, you know, what happens is that he appears to be capitulating. He appears to be kind of like, here's a performance of Indianness that feels familiar to you. But then when he's speaking, he's offering a lot of critique. He's critiquing capitalism, he's critiquing conquest, he's critiquing Christian civilization and talking a lot about the ways in which, you know, he feels uh, white society is failing to live up to their Christian values that they claim are, you know, the hallmarks of their civilization. And Eastman himself is somebody who um, always embraces Dakota teachings and spirituality and and he was raised by his grandmother who kind of embedded a lot of that in him Uh, but he's also a christian and so he's able to kind of navigate those worlds in a very um nuanced way and then use that in a lot of his public presentations to i would think um push back against some of those dominant cultural expectations that may have tried to limit what was possible for Native people. The, certainly the expectation that they weren't modern. He was very much about pushing back against that. Uh, you get a sense of that from a lot of his public speeches. Um, and so what's interesting to me about the photograph from 1927 is that it's it's one of many um, that I found in his archive there at Dartmouth, where Dartmouth is celebrating their native graduate um, and they ask him to perform in a pageant where he play, he's asked to play the role of Samson Occam because they want to reenact the founding of the college because they're laying the cornerstone for a new building. And so there's a lot that's very fraught about that, you know, as if you can just kind of substitute one need for another. And, you know, Eastman participates in a lot of that. And I think it's because he's very aware that he has cultural capital because of his education at Dartmouth. He has some connections to people who are able to help him be a successful author, be a successful public speaker. Uh, and of course, he's got he's got a lot of kids, you know, he's got a big family. So I mean, he needs to have um, 
a lucrative career, not just as someone who sees themselves a, as a spokesperson for Native issues and for Native people as modern, as people who should be counted as contributors to the U.S., but also because he's a father and he's got a family. So there's that kind of component of it, too. I mean, you know, there's a way in which all of these people have to balance um, their work as political activists with whatever material realities they, they also are facing. Likewise, can you introduce Carlos Montezuma for our listeners, addressing the central tensions, tensions in his life as a writer, doctor, and activist that culminated in Wasaja, his attempted reproachment of Indianness and citizenship, as well as his correspondence with Richard Pratt during the allotment era? Yeah, Carlos Montezuma, what an interesting figure. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I got to know him really well by spending a lot of time at the Newberry Library in their archives and at the Wisconsin um, State Historical Society. So he's interesting. Uh, he's definitely um, outspoken. Uh, he's, I think anyone who's ever studied this period and studied Montezuma in particular, and I think you can see this characterization first appear in Hazel Hertzberg's work on the Society of the American Indians, that he's known as a somewhat outspoken person, uh, someone has a short temper, Certainly, you know, there was also an interesting connection between him and, and Gertrude Bonin because they were romantically linked for a little bit of time. They were engaged and then, you know, that doesn't work out. Um, I actually found in the archives a letter that she sent to him um, with an itemized list of like, here are all the reasons we're not together. Like, here's here's how you're not the right person for me. Um, but, you know, they, they maintain their... Um, you know, kind of cordial relationship anyway, when they're both working with the SAI, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's much more successful than Eastman um, at be having a, a flourishing medical practice, because he's able to set up an office in Chicago. Um, and so that's, that's important. And it's through that work that he has some resources to then do some self-publishing with his newsletter, Wasaja, which I've looked at the subscription lists and I've found that it circulated really widely to Native and non-Native people all across the U.S. And I think it served as a really interesting public forum for discussing uh, corruption within the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the failures of allotment and other assimilation era policies, and um, this question of citizenship, you know, and how to how to understand it. So, yeah, he's a really, um, I'd say, complicated figure, but they all are. But he's very complicated in the sense that, you know, he wants to um, have a say in how a group like the SAI is functioning, but then he becomes very, very critical of what they're doing. And so I think he unfortunately does some things in some of their meetings that make some of the other members and leaders not so happy. And so they're not so they're not that excited to have him really involved. <laughs> so his kind of activist work in many ways seems to to be the most productive when it's on his own through Wasaja and less so when he's working with other folks. Though he and Henry Standing Bear, Luther's younger brother, seem to have a pretty cordial relationship and have a lot of um, correspondence that reveals how they both have these kind of critiques of how the SAI is, is short-sighted and it's focused on urban, you know, Native problems and not attending to reservation issues and things like that. So that's kind of interesting. Um, at the same time, also, Carlos Montezuma has this friendship with Richard Pratt. Um, and I think, you know, I was just teaching about this with my students about how do we think about the work of uh, progressive era 
white reformers. We were mainly looking at the women's work in the WNIA, the kind of women's national group of, around Indian stuff. But um, Pratt, I think, is another good example of this, which is, you know, from a 21st century perspective, we might say, oh, well, he, you know, he wants to kill the Indian and save a man. He wants to just kind of erase any traces of indigeneity and all that. I mean, so much of what um, because of like racist discourse and, and thinking around Native people, linking them to savagery, because Pratt was saying, no, there's something redeemable here. We can, you know, uh, educate them and, and incorporate them into our society. I mean, in a way, this is a progressive idea because it's trying to see Native people as fully human, fully capable of, you know, everything that everyone else is. Um and so, you know, I and mean, that's a generous way of looking at Pratt, maybe, but I, I do think it's helpful in understanding why people like Carlos Montezuma or Charles Eastman, certainly Charles Eastman, like Aline, uh, why they had relationships with Pratt, because Pratt himself um, was interested in, in trying to make Native people's future, future in the U.S. Um, viable, you know, and I don't think he always had the best vision, but he was thinking about it you know, and trying to do something there. And that's why he and Montezuma maintain a pretty close relationship, um, though they do disagree about how to do that and what that means. And, I, and Pratt's certainly not as critical of um, federal administration work as Montezuma is. Montezuma is incredibly critical of that and, and would, ra- you know, rather just dismantle the entire Bureau of Indian Affairs, you know, if you could. Can you elaborate a little bit on uh, the why subscriptions to his newsletter uh, contributed to a pan-Indian activism and how correspondence, performance, and print culture shaped Montezuma's representational politics in regards to capitalism, Indianness, and unplaced sentiments. Okay, so there's a lot to break down in that question, but sure. I mean, I think something I hinted at was how the circulation of Mosada to uh, rural, reser- often reservation-based communities um, helped connect a lot of Native people who had shared experiences around um, oppression because of the federal kind of the federal projects of administering Native people's lives, and so in that way, um, it provided space for people to write letters to the editor, for um, Montezuma himself to kind of respond to people's concerns. And so in that way, it was a, it was a, a site, kind of print culture became a site for political activism and also a record and archive of it. And from what I could tell, um, there were these money subscribers, right? So there were some of whom were working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs as um, administrators. And so interesting that they're also kind of reading this and, you know, to what degree are they going to be influenced by some of the conversations that are happening there, right? That's a kind of interesting question. Uh, Montezuma does critique capitalism a good amount in Wasaja uh, and in some of his other writings. He's got some kind of semi-poetical works and things like that, uh, where he seems a bit critical of capitalism for um, displacing Native people. And the performance piece is interesting, too, because I do think that there's a lot going on in the early 20th century around um, the performance of Indianness, you know, um, both in terms of non-Native perspectives of what it means to be a Native person and, you know, kind of the the dime novels, Wild West shows, uh, early films, a lot of those sorts of popular representations where 
there's some very limited portrayals of, of Native people. Uh, and then you've got Native people themselves who are, you know, performing in pageants and doing powwow circuits and, and people like Eastman and Montezuma and Bonin and Standing Bear being invited to give public lectures and how they have some options that might be a little bit different with how they represent themselves and kind of perform Indianness. And um, from what I can tell, Montezuma was very much um, a critic of the costuming um, whether it was strategic or not, the, the idea of costuming, the idea that like, you know, Eastman is wearing this headdress and this kind of uh, buckskin suit that he would not wear in his everyday life. Right. And so it's very performative and it's very much a kind of like, this is what they want to see. So I'm going to, you know, use this and then I'll try and say something that's kind of a little bit different. I mean, an equally performative for, I think also is the way that Montezuma is very big on wearing tuxedos and, and kind of performing a certain, um, upper middle class, uh, respectability politics. Uh, so there's that piece of to it too, which I think is another angle to, to look at in thinking about what's going on at this moment. Please introduce Gertrude Bonin. You've already referred to her or Redbird for our listeners. Assessing the goals and consequences of her linkage between Americanness and Indianness in written spoken texts such as School Days, um, as well as her initial contributions to the Atlantic Monthly, which my students are currently reading. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So she's great. I mean, because there's been a lot of um, literary scholarship on on Bonin. You know, I think there was this moment really coming out of the '80s and, and after where people wanted to read these works of hers and kind of see how is she um, a voice for, you know, Native womanhood in this moment. Uh, she's very critical of, you know, assimilation practices like boarding schools, right? And she kind of writes about that um, very explicitly in a lot of her work and and writes also about just the, the personal um, experiences of, of someone who has to be, as a child, is separated from their family and um, you know, what that does um, on, on a kind of psychic level, what that also meant for their family. And and so I think there's a lot there that's really productive. Um, I, I also like looking at her as part of this other collective and thinking about, you know, what happens in her life after she publishes some of these literary works and the fact that she kind of goes on to do some somewhat more um, overtly political projects and, you know, she's active as a secretary in the Society of American Indians organization. So there's that kind of component of it, but she also like Eastman because she's written these magazine articles and, and short stories that are popular and kind of engage with a sentimentalist uh, frame a little bit. So they appeal to a lot of white women. Um, you know, she's able to have a little bit of a career doing some public talks too, which, gives her different platforms for representing herself, but also being a larger representative for Native, Native women during this moment. So that's kind of intriguing to me as well. Can you eluc- elucidate, if possible, the collaboration between bon- Bonin and Mariana Burgess, including the publication of old Indian legends, articles, and Bonin's representation of Indian womanhood for wide audiences in print and in photography? And if uh, possible, can you touch on really, really briefly her tenure as president of the National Council of American Indians? Right, right. Um, yeah, so I think what tends to not uh, to fall out a little bit of some of the literary work on her is what happens after she um, seems to stop publishing these um, these short stories, which is that she's 
just really active as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. And um, when the SAI, you know, kind of breaks up, she's she starts her own organization, the National Council of American Indians. And, and she wants in some ways with that organization to do things that SAI was less successful at. So she wants to pay more attention to reservation issues and communities to literally physically travel around, which she does to different places um, in, in rural Indian country to have a sense of what is important to native people and how this group might be able to um, help them. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's interesting to me. The photography piece is also another element, right? Like, you know, she's got this kind of connection with Gertrude Casimir and these representations of her where she does seem to, um, offer us, right. A different portrayal of native womanhood where, you know, and I mentioned that costuming stuff that Montezuma is very critical of where she's, you know, giving us a different take on that because she's not necessarily, you know, dressed in clothing that could appear to um, affirm non-native expectations of native people as being, you know, always of the past, um, not modern, primitive, uh, and, and all that. So it, instead, she's very much kind of woman of her time, you know, and very, very much an example of like, you know, modern modernity. And so I think that's, that's very empowering on a lot of levels. Um, Mariana Burgess is a really funky uh, historical figure. I don't know how else to describe her. Uh, it does seem like there's an evolution in her thinking around Native people and their place in American society. I think she becomes more aggressive and wanting to elevate someone like Bonin um, because she thinks that Bonin has a unique perspective and can reach people um, and, and convince them to think differently about Native issues and, um, you know, how to maybe kind of critique certain assimilation era policies, um, you know, which is really, I don't know, somewhat, somewhat unusual because of, because of Burgess's earlier work with Pratt and the Carlisle School. Uh, so, so there's something definitely between those two women and their relationship that, you know, I think is illuminating in regards to alliances between Native and non-Native people in the early 20th century and, and what they could learn from each other and, and what they, how they could help each other. Please introduce Luther Standing Bear for our listeners, addressing the representational politics of Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show in uh, Luther Standing Bear's memory, as well as uh, Standing Bear's uh, family's early travels with Cody. Yeah, so Luther Standing Bear, you know, I mean, I organized this whole book um, with each chapter focusing on one of these four people, and then and then within that, highlighting a particular theme, theme four themes that run throughout the book, right? And so education is a theme, and epistolary culture is a theme, and you know, kind of literary output writing. Uh, is another, or publishing is another theme. And then the final theme is performance, which I've mentioned many times, I think, with young people, but in many ways, Standing Bear um, is the ideal person to talk, uh, talk about performance with because of his work with Cody and uh, as a Wild West show performer and interpreter um, and the way that he writes about that later. So you've got these kind of like, you know, decades later, he's publishing these books while he's working as an actor in Hollywood and he's remembering this early era and this moment of 
getting to travel to England, getting to do different things because he has this relationship with Cody. Um, so, you know, I'm a lot about that. That's, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, is this really what happened? Or is he just remembering it this way because he wants to perform a certain role now, and, you know, as he's writing it, the author voice, all of that. So there's a lot there that's kind of interesting. Um, but I do like that in, in these writings, you can get a sense of his uh, encounter with Sitting Bull and he's like a young boy and he's, you know, able to have this moment of translation where Sitting Bull's, you know, in Philadelphia at this event and, and talking and there's a translator there who is mistranslating what's being said. And so by telling us this story and giving us his translation, there's just a lot of layers there that Stanley is able to play with in terms of, you know, um, just how um, how smart Native people are, how um, how strategic they can be, and the possibilities for kind of alliances uh, between them in moments that themselves could seem very fraught and very challenging. So, so there's a lot there. Um, I, I actually have an article about Stanley Bear's younger brother, uh, Henry, uh, that came out recently in the Great Plains Quarterly that says a little bit more about, you know, um, another way of thinking about Native, the Standing Bear family and, and kind of activism and, and performance and all of that, because there's a lot that could be unpacked. Um, so, I mean, I'll just leave it there for now. <laughs> How and why did the tech advances of film produce a norm whereby Indian actors were continually cited as real Indians that paradoxically facilitated and undermined Luther Standing Bear's activist aims, like in the uh, Indian Actors Association, as well as the uh, National League for Justice to American Indians. And if you can briefly touch on uh, how uh, blood quantum and debates over his incarceration for child molestation shaped or did not shape his legacy. Yeah, so I think it's important to disentangle those two questions, um, just because the ramifications of the answers are really, really different. Uh, there's been a good amount of work, I think, on the first part of the question around um, the indexical quality of film and, and the way that early Westerns are being marketed and how they're very much taking their cues from the Wild West show circuit and trying to say that what's thrilling about watching these Westerns are is the fact that these are actual Native people. Um, and so that that's something that's going on with that. Um, of course, that raises this whole question of like, well, what is it? What's an actual Native person and what is authenticity? And, and you know, um, what happens when... Hollywood becomes less concerned with, with that and therefore is happy to hire anybody to play um, an Indian role in a film. And what does that mean then for folks like Standing Bear and others who are living in that um, new cultural milieu and, and how their, you know, their careers are maybe suffering, right? And so, you know, his involvement with the Indian Actors Association um, is very much around, like, wanting to guarantee Native people a future in film. Um, and so in some ways, he's having to kind of rely on this idea of authenticity and ethnic authenticity, which, you know, in many ways is very problematic. Um, but, you know, also something that helps Native people from different tribes kind of come together in Hollywood. Um, my, my next book project actually is all about Native people in entertainment and kind of starts in the 30s moments and moves all the way to the 1970s. And it's very much kind of coming out of the chapter on Luther Sanger, actually, and, and some of the work of that 
group, the National League for Justice to American Indians, which is, you know, this kind of pan-tribal group that I think forms because there are all these Native people working in Hollywood, but it's very much about, like, how do we guarantee our kids have access to public schools? How do we make sure that we can educate other non-Native people about, you know, our role to play in, in American society? So the other question is big, um, certainly in terms of the the child molestation case. So um, as far as I know, I'm really the first scholar to, to grapple with a lot of this. I think Luther Standing Bear is a very interesting historical figure, and I think his writings are important. I think he leaves an important legacy in a lot of ways, but I also think that we can't um, treat people from the past as, you know, we can't elevate them to a level of, like, uh, sainthood. <laughs> they are people, and, you know, if you're going to look at all aspects of their lives and look at all aspects. And I tried to do that in, in considering that there was a case brought against him. Um, he did plead guilty. It's hard to know exactly if that's because he was guilty or because there was pressure to do so. He wasn't really given the super uh, strong sentence. Um, it seemed like, you know, his life wasn't dramatically altered by this case, but it was important for me to like look into it and write about it and think about it. Uh, and, the other piece of it is that it comes around the same time as there are these debates um, in Hollywood about whether, you know, whether or not he's a full-blooded Indian and all this stuff, uh, which is interesting to consider, like, why are people needing to have that conversation um, at, the, at that same moment? You know, are they trying to discredit him on a number of levels? Do they want to just push him out of Hollywood because he's a rabble-rouser? You know, is that maybe what's going on? Finally. How and why did the writings of Darcy McNichol during the Indian New Deal and reorganiza reorganization era, which you discussed in your conclusion, which I thought was interesting, reconfigure the significance and possibly insignificance of Indian intellectuals during the American Indian movement and maybe after? Yeah, so um, so it's always interesting to move from working on a dissertation project to a book project. My dissertation didn't really have that kind of a conclusion to it. And so when I was working on the book manuscript, I was like, how do I, how do I conclude all of this? And so I wanted to try to find concrete connections between some of the work of these individuals and the larger Native networks they're part of um, and what came after, right? And so it seemed to make sense to look at uh, this kind of 19 late 1930s, early 1940s and onwards and like the kind of National Congress of American Indians and someone like McNichol, he gives me another um, opportunity to, to use the biographical as a way of getting a hold of who he was and some of the significance of his life. He liked these other people. Um, he was a writer. Um, he was an actor, um, an activist. Uh, he did some, you know, a lot of public talks and things like that. So I feel like he also... Was, was similar to a lot of them. And also he was really connected to the city of Chicago. And I like the idea of kind of starting the book in Chicago with Simon Pulkagan and then ending it in Chicago with Darcy McNichol, who of course is now the, his name he's, it, it is, is there at the Newbury Library for the, you know, the, their center. So I think he has a really clear legacy and gives us a sense of how Native intellectual work can, um, can resonate across generations. Um, and, you know, there might be specific moments where we see it as having a kind of activist tinge and, and really being engaged in political conversations. 
Um, and but then it can also stand on its own as you know, like this is of value to us because it gives us more insight into uh, this particular person's experience and their take on the world. Um, and so, you know, it was helpful for that. It was helpful in, in thinking about, you know, a shift that was happening in the 1930s with the, you know, the Indian Reorganization Act or the Indian New Deal, right? And and how did Native people respond to that? Um, certainly, anyone who's familiar with federal Indian policy, <laughs> which there are some of us out there, would look at my book and would know that that's why it's the period is, the, the way I periodize it, that's, that's what it's about. It's kind of starting with the allotment era assimilation and, and, you know, the Dawes Act, that kind of thing. And it's ending uh, with the New Deal, you know. Um, and some people will say that's because, like, the Indian Reorganization Act is trying to make up for the failures of allotment and the Dawes Act. Um, and in some ways it does, in some ways it doesn't. And McNichol allows me to kind of, you know, give voice to that. I have one extra question. Is there any way you can uh, disclose maybe a little bit on your next project on uh, Native peoples and entertainment? Oh, sure, sure. So it's very self-serving because my great-grandfather worked in Hollywood in film. And so I wanted to I wanted to know more about that. And uh, I, I learned quite a bit while doing research for Loser Standing Bear and that chapter in the book. And so I was like, you know what? I want to write a book about Native people and entertainment. And I don't want to focus on stereotype, misrepresentation, um, the evils of Hollywood. I don't want to focus on that. You know, I mean, we kind of know those stories. I think they're pretty familiar to us. Um, it's not a new thing to say that films might be racist or might be problematic. Instead, I was like, okay, what can I learn about the worlds that these people inhabited when they were off screen or off stage, right? They're, they're kind of doing performing, they're working in entertainment, but they're doing other things outside of that. And what are they doing? And so that's what this other project's about. And the periodization of the 30s to the 70s is nice because it gives me a chance to talk about people like Jay Silverheels, who a lot of us know as this is the Lone Ranger and Tonto, right? So this is Tonto in many ways, kind of the most well-known native actor of his generation. Um, but he was doing all these things that he could do because he had that celebrity and he had uh, material wealth. And so he was doing things outside of film with a, a pan-tribal community in Los Angeles to, you know, raise money, raise awareness, kind of social activism, you know, and he even had his own Indian actors workshop where he was training native people um, in the craft of acting so that they could get roles where they didn't have to play like the kind of stereotypical Indian and the Western type thing, you know, so that, that was a big part of the, my interest in this project. And it's been really challenging to try to find out about this history because it's not as if, oh, here's the official archives. Go here. You'll learn it all. So I have to be very creative and, and interdisciplinary and looking at certain sources, reading against the grain of some archives, and then also doing interviews with people who are still alive from that time. So I, I was able to do an interview with Sashin Littlefeather, um, who a lot of people know from her appearance at the Academy Awards in 1973, I want to say it was, uh, when she refuses the uh, Best Actor Award from Arlen Brando and is able to use that platform to say something about the history of um, misrepresenting Native people on film and, and also make a reference to um, AIM and activism and what's happening at that moment uh, at Wounded Knee. So uh, I was able to interview her for this project, which is very cool because she uh, knew Jay Silverheels personally and kind of could talk about a lot of things about this intersection of activism and entertainment. And so so that's in a nutshell what the next project's all about. Well, thank you for joining us today, Professor Vigil. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. So the book's Indigenous Intellectuals out from Cambridge University Press. This is Ryan Tripp. This has been a a Native, Native American Studies channel, New Books Network production. I'll see you or listen to you next time.